Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Now is my soul troubled. These are the words of Jesus spoken days before his death. Now is my soul troubled. Do we find that surprising? That from the lips of Jesus we would hear, now is my soul troubled. I mean, from the same lips that spoke to the stormy sea and said, peace be still and calm the storm. Now this one speaks of a storm within his own soul that does not seem to be calming down. Now is my soul troubled. Well, if we find this surprising that Jesus would utter such words out of his own soul, perhaps we really still haven't entered into the depth of the incarnation. The three most important words in Christian theology are incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. Everything really that we believe as Christians in our theology is in one way or another related to those three words. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. That's why our three most important holy days on our Christian calendar are Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. The incarnation, that means means the word becoming incarnate, in concarne, with flesh. This is This is when the Word, the Logos of God, remember John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the divine logic of God, the idea of God, the wisdom of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by Him, and apart from Him nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh. The Word became incarnate. The Word was made human flesh. And we have beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the incarnation, what we find is God in Christ becoming fully human. There's an ancient Christian heresy called docetism. And it's the idea that that Jesus was not really human. He appeared. He only seemed to be human. That's what docetism means. It's like seemism. He only seemed to be human. He was really God, but only seemed to be human. No, the church has correctly always said that is a heretical idea. The truth is that God in Christ joins us fully in our humanity. God in Christ assumes, takes on our broken humanity in order that he might heal our humanity and deliver us from death. Jesus Christ truly is Emmanuel, God with us in full participation, full solidarity with our human suffering. 
Now, what are the two most human things we can do? What, I mean, what are the two most human things we can do? Number one, to be born. Number two, to die. That's as human as it gets, to be born and to die. To be human is to be mortal. Divine is immortal, but human is mortal. From the Latin word mort, which is the Latin word for death, we are subject to death. A mortal is a being that is subject to death. Well, God in Christ became mortal. That is, God in Christ became a being subject to death in order that divine mortality might be given to humanity. Humans are not inherently immortal. This may surprise you, but it's absolutely true. The immortality of the soul belongs to Platonism, not to Judaism or Christianity. In Christianity, what we confess is that God alone possesses immortality. But God in Christ took on humanity that he might share with us his immortality. So that Paul, speaking of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, says that the day will come when this mortal shall put on immortality. It's the gift of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us this victory over mortality in Jesus Christ. All right. So Jesus is a mortal. And he's sensing his mortality. And Jesus is approaching death as one who has emptied himself of his divinity, taken on mortality, and he feels the weight of anguish of approaching death. And he says, now is my soul troubled. Jesus spoke these words in Jerusalem um, just a few days before his death sometime between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. Jesus is in Jerusalem, yes, as a Passover pilgrim, but more importantly, remember, he's already ridden into the city on the back of the donkey with the shouts of hail to the king, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's come to Jerusalem to become king. But Jesus understands that he will become king through crucifixion. No one else understands that. He's told that to his disciples, but they can't, they can't bear that. They can't understand that. They think that Jesus is going to, quote, succeed, as we think of success. That Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem and win in the most conventional way. That he'll depose Herod and Caiaphas and Pilate and become king through success. They don't understand that he's going to become king by a descent into death. Now, at the Passover, there were some Greeks that had come to Jerusalem, not Jews, but Greeks. And they've come to, to witness the spectacle of the Jewish Passover, which was quite phenomenal. And they've heard about Jesus. And so they go to Philip and say, sir, we would like to see Jesus. Uh, Philip is the only disciple with a Greek name. So perhaps we wonder if he had a Greek father. Maybe he was fluent in Greek. Somehow the Greeks come to the one disciple with a Greek name and they say, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And then Jesus is informed that Greeks are out there that want to hear from him and see him and encounter him. And indeed, the Greeks will. 
Because Jesus understands that the time of his glory is coming. And what's going to happen is the Greek world, the Gentile world, the whole world is going to see Jesus. But not as a conventional king. Not as one who succeeds as the kings of this world succeed. Um, That's why Jesus says this. In context of saying, yes, I understand that that my time of glory is coming and the Greeks will see me and the whole world will see me. But then he says this, Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is Jesus speaking cryptically. And we only understand his cryptic remark after the fact. What Jesus actually is saying is this. Unless I fall down into death and die, the fruit of salvation from death will never come to the world. So Jesus is approaching his death. He feels it. That's why he says, my soul is troubled. Jesus approaches his own death not as an actor in a passion play. We're in the season of passion plays, although I suppose they're all canceled now. But, you know, churches will put on a passion play. And what you, the hardest part about a passion play is you've got to find a young man with long hair that looks good with his shirt off to play Jesus. And uh, so he's going to act out the part of Jesus in the passion play. Jesus is not an actor in a passion play. Jesus is fully human, living this in real time. And he approaches his own death with a sense of dread that troubles his soul. You understand that Jesus doesn't defeat death by conventional conquest, not as a gallant knight slaying a dragon. Instead, Jesus defeats death by surrendering to death and filling death with his own divine self. So that now for us, after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, for us to encounter death or to enter into death is not to encounter death, but to encounter Christ, who now fills all things everywhere with himself, to encounter Christ as both judge and Savior. The writer of the book of Hebrews says it like this, and this is so beautiful. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. And right now, we're all being tested. The whole world is being tested. Everyone in America is being tested. We're all in this great pandemic trial and test together. But Jesus, the one who has participated in human sorrow and suffering with us, is able to come to our help in the time of testing. Jesus is not a stranger to a troubled soul. Jesus is not a stranger to sorrow and suffering. It's for this reason that he is suited to be our high priest. 
Also in the book of Hebrews, the writer says, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we're all in a time of need right now. We sense that. We feel that. Maybe your soul is troubled. Draw near to Jesus, the one who has endured the testing of suffering as one of us. Draw near to him. He sits upon a throne of grace. Don't come timidly. Come boldly and say, Jesus, I need you to help me. And he will help you. You will receive mercy. You will find grace to help in time of need. After Jesus has said, now is my soul troubled, he then said these very significant words. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. On three occasions in Galilee, Jesus spoke of his death by crucifixion. He foretold it to his disciples, who again just couldn't understand it, couldn't accept it, didn't believe that that would happen. But now here in Jerusalem, just a few days before his death, Jesus, again, speaks of his death, but this time he gives some interpretive meaning to what, why he will die. In Galilee, he just said he's going to die by crucifixion. But here in Jerusalem, he gives some interpretation to the meaning of his death by crucifixion. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up, that's a reference to crucifixion. A euphemism for being crucified. When I am lifted up in crucifixion, I will draw all people to myself. If we're going to engage in any discussion about what the death of Jesus Christ means, we have to pay close attention to how Jesus, in an interpretive way, spoke of his own death. He says it's going to do three things. That it will judge the world. That it will cast out the ruler of the world. And draw all the world to him. Lock on to that. Jesus says that his death by crucifixion will do three things. Judge the world. Drive out the ruler of the world. Draw all the world to himself. The cross pronounces God's final judgment on the world's system. The world as it is. The world as it is arranged. How is the world arranged? It's arranged according to the governance of the principalities and powers. What do we mean by principalities and powers? We mean the very powerful, the very rich, and the very religious, the institutions they represent, and the spirit that is generated within all of those institutions. These are the principalities and powers. And in the gospel drama of the Holy Week, in the Paschal Mystery, the principalities and powers take the form of Pilate, the very powerful. Herod, the very rich. He was one of the richest men in the world. Think of him as like a super billionaire. And the very religious, of course, Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is using religion as his means to gain proximity to wealth and power. And he says as much when he confesses, we have no king but Caesar. And so these are representative of the principalities and powers. Pilate and Caiaphas. 
and Herod in conspiracy against Jesus. Now, the principalities and powers that rule the world because of their wealth and their might, uh, they claim to have a right to rule the world because they are wise and just. That's their propaganda. That's their claim. But the cross exposes the principalities and powers as neither wise nor just. They're simply greedy for wealth and power. And they are exposed when they take the Holy One, the Righteous One, the very Son of God, and crucify Him in the name of their system. The Apostle Paul says that this is the moment in which the principalities and powers are put to shame. In the ancient world, there was nothing, nothing, nothing more shameful than death by crucifixion. Nothing was considered more shameful. And of course, victims were always crucified naked. Even to this day, we can't quite bear that level of shame in our depictions of how Christ is crucified. So we still sense a lingering depth of that kind of shame. But the Apostle Paul says, no, when Christ was crucified, it was not Christ who was stripped and put to shame. It was the principalities and powers that were stripped and put to public shame because in that moment it revealed their naked bid for power as being corrupt and unjust. And so their ruse, their disguise of saying we have the right to rule the world because we're wise and just is stripped away. The world is judged. We could say it this way. The cross is God's final judgment upon the world as it is and the invitation to enter the kingdom of God as the saving alternative. Yeah, the cross judges the world just as Jesus said it would. Secondly, the cross casts out the ruler of the world. Yes, the cross drives out the ruler of this broken, fallen world, that is, the Satan. The Satan organizes and unites the world by accusation. You understand that's what Satan means. Satan, Hasatan, means the accuser. And this is the principle by which Satan, as the ruler of the world, organizes the world and unites the world through accusation. When we're under the satanic impulse, we unite together by uniting against. We find a common enemy that we vilify and scapegoat. We say, all right, we're going to have unity by all agreeing that it's their fault. It's them. And we pull together our collective anxiety and dread and fear and loathing, and we project it upon a single victim. That's the whole process of the satanic. That's how that works. And in some way, then we sacrifice a scapegoat. If not physically and literally, then, then with our words and metaphorically. Throughout history, and I'm thinking especially about the Middle Ages, when there were a series of bubonic plague that wreaked havoc in Europe, uh, this part of the sad story of the Black Death was how Christian communities would unite together against Jews. And they became the scapegoat victims. So again, I want to urge you, just say you're not going to participate in that. This is not the season for assigning blame. This is the season of faith, hope, and love. Well, the cross exposes scapegoating for what it is, the, the mob lynching of an innocent victim because it was done to Jesus. So let's say it this way. Where the scapegoat mechanism is exposed, the Satan is eventually driven out 
And the cross is the ultimate expose of scapegoating. In other words, during this time of pressure and fear and anxiety, don't find common ground by blaming someone else. Don't do to others what the mob on Good Friday did to Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, inasmuch as you do it to one of these least, you're doing it to me. All right, so that's how the Satan is driven out because we refuse to play the blame game, and that's the only game the devil knows how to play. And when you say, I'm not going to participate in that because I see what it is through the, through the lens of the cross, when you say, I'm not going to play the devil's game, the devil is simply driven out. The third thing that Jesus says that his death will accomplish is that it will draw the whole world to himself. I want to read that. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. I absolutely love that. We could say it this way. The cross is where the world is refounded. The world has been, according to the principalities and powers from Cain onward, founded around an axis of power enforced by violence. But at the cross... There is a basic refounding of the world. Because we look at Jesus and what do we see? We see the sinless one, the blameless one, the holy one being blamed and condemned. And we see him bearing our sins. Because with great violence we send our sins into Jesus. You could say it this way. In that moment the sin of the world coalesced into a hideous singularity. And with great violence was sinned into the body of Jesus. But how does Jesus respond? He absorbs it all and says, Father, forgive them. Now, understand that Jesus does not act as an agent of change upon the Father. The Father is the living God who is immutable. He does not change. What Jesus does is reveal who the Father is. This is what he says over and over and over. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. So in that moment, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he's not changing the mind of the Father, as if the Father said, well, I don't know, I guess so, for your sake I'll do it. No, that's not what's happening. Rather, Jesus is revealing the heart of the Father to us. The Father would say, yes, of course, my son, that is what we do. So this is the moment where sin is dealt with by being forgiven in mass. The sin of the world coalesced into a hideous singularity that is the great sin, of the murder of the Son of God, is forgiven in that moment. And we see the beauty of that. We see that that's why Jesus speaks of it as His glory. You see the beauty of that. And what happens is when people see Christ crucified, forgiving the sin of the world, we see the love of God in perfection. So that instead of being organized around an axis of power enforced by violence, we can be drawn to a refounding of the world. We're drawn to Christ crucified as the axis of love expressed in forgiveness that refounds the world. And as we look upon that kind of love, that kind of grace, then we, we are drawn to Jesus and we're drawn into a new saving orbit. He says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. David Bentley Hart, in his translation of the New Testament, 
translates that word draw as drag. And he, he makes this point. He says that's actually what the word is. I will drag all people to myself. It's the same word that is used later in the Gospel of John when Peter catches 153 fish. Remember that? Peter and, and six other disciples and, and Jesus says, Have you any fish? No, we haven't caught anything. Well, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And there's 153 fish in this net. And it says that Peter dragged that ashore. Well, this is the picture that, that, that Christ crucified is in the process of dragging all people to himself. I find that so beautiful. Let's say it this way. The cross is the eternal epicenter of the love of God that is in the process of attracting, or I want to say dragging, all people to Christ as the Savior of the world. Amen and amen. So, Christ... My soul is troubled. But it's not the end of the story. He says, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to condemn the world as it is. I'm going to drive out the ruler of the world that has been the Satan, the whole principle of accusation. I'm going to refound the world around love, around grace, around forgiveness. And I'm going to drag everybody eventually. I'm going to drag them into this. I'm going to draw them and so I want to ask you right now, do, do you sense that? Do you sense the beauty of Christ? Do you, do you sense yourself being drawn? Well, then let yourself be drawn to Jesus. Go ahead and just let Jesus draw you to himself. He doesn't want to condemn you. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus endured a troubled soul that he might understand what it is to be troubled, that he might go down into death and disarm and defeat and destroy death from the inside out and then draw you to himself, not to condemn you, but to save you, to rescue you, to help you. Allow yourself to be drawn to Jesus. Lord Jesus, we turn to you right now in this moment and we say yes and we see you in your beauty. We see you forgiving the sin of the world. We see you revealing the love of the Father upon the cross. And we're drawn to such love. We're drawn to such compassion. We're drawn to such mercy. We're drawn to such grace. And we come to you even with our own troubled souls. Now forgive our sins and heal our souls and make us the people that we need to be. Which I suppose Jesus is simply to say, save us. Oh, God, make speed to save us. Oh, Lord, make haste to help us. Oh, God, make speed to save us. Oh, Lord, make haste to help us. Maybe you can pray that with me. Oh, God, make speed to save us. Oh, Lord, make haste to help us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.